Well, this morning, uh, I want to uh, dig into a topic that usually isn't addressed that much, although I'm going to tell, we're going to walk through a pretty familiar story. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family went to Ohio. My in-laws live in Ohio, central Ohio, and we got to do something we, I never got to do growing up in California, is we participated or saw a 4-H competition, or whatever, uh, where they, my and knee showed lambs in a sweaty barn. Uh, and they would show these lambs, and I didn't really understand the grading system, but somehow everyone else knew, and they're trying to show, and they're touching the lambs, and this whole thing. And at the end of that, at the end of that, everyone in the top three or four got ribbons, right? And then you go to the little barns, and in the barn areas, you would see the ribbons displayed. And I noticed on those ribbons... You had blue ribbons, right? Blue ribbons were first place. You had second place and down to like my nephew's got the pink ones and fifth place. I'm like, sorry about that. But what I noticed about those ribbons is the ribbons did not say first place and then first loser. They didn't say that. It didn't say, right? It didn't say, it didn't say first place and then first failure. It said second place, third place, and such. You see, we're pretty good at determining success. We know how to give out rewards or certificates or awards for achieving certain goals. Not many people who are in sales. Anybody in sales in here and you get the top salesman award, you put that plaque on your wall in your little cubicle in your office. We don't put plaques up saying, first failure to made no sales this year. Yay! I did it, right? Like, I, I'm a failure. We don't do that. We don't, we know how to measure success often, but we often don't know how to measure failure. And yet, failure is part of life. If you're here this morning, you have experienced some measure, some level of failure. And if you haven't this morning, you absolutely will. Failure is a part of life. In fact, if you look historically at, at famous or successful people in our world, not only have they failed, but really the most successful people have recognized that failure was part of the process of their growth. There are some quotes that I found uh, from famous people. I hope, I think you know these people. Abraham Lincoln lost elections. He, he wasn't very successful in other areas of life, and yet he was one of our great presidents. He said, my great concern is not whether you have failed, but whether you are content in your failure. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series, at one point in her life found herself, she said, on the brink of homelessness because she set out her life, got divorced real quick. She was a single mom and nearly living on the street. Steve Jobs was actually fired by the company he started. And he said this, I didn't see it then, but it turned out being fired by Apple was the best thing that ever happened to me. Walt Disney, Walt Disney who maybe has created one of the most successful brands and companies this world has known, started out in a company called The Last. He was fired from a Missouri newspaper for not being creative enough. Can you believe that? He said, we don't look backward very long. We keep moving forward, opening new doors and doing new things because we're curious and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. Bill Gates, a ultra-billionaire, he said, it's but it's more important to heed the lessons of failure. And then last we know that uh, one of the biggest failures that we saw was when LeBron James came to the Lakers. <laughs> and uh, he wanted to taste failure. <laughs> and so... I'm a Golden State Warrior fan, so... Oh, this is good. I'll tell you about a little bet I had with Eric later. Yep. How do we deal with failure? 
Failure is a part of life. It will happen. And how we respond to it will tell us a lot of where we're going to go. How do we deal with failure at work or school or our marriages? How do we deal with failure when things are out of our control? But not only that, how do we deal with moral failure? How do we deal when we, when we set out to do what's right? We set out to please the Lord. We want to please our parents. We want to please the Lord in our dating relationships, and our marriages, and our finances, and yet we find ourselves failing. How do we deal with it? How do we deal with failures in our parenting or with our kids? And how do we move forward after failure? In God's training curriculum, it's very fascinating that as God trains us to be mature disciples, he adds classes that are often avoided. We would avoid these classes because they'd be too difficult or costly. It's like when you're in college and you try to avoid speech class or biology. It's like, I don't want to take those. But he calls us to learn in the gym of suffering, the lecture hall of trials, and the laboratory of failure. The Bible actually is full of losers. It's full of losers, failures, who are liars, adulterers, abdicators, deniers, wimps, and deceivers who vied for their own glory, sought their own comfort, and feared their own death. This is a group of people that God not only called to himself, but the ones he chose to use in his harvest, to take part in ministry and to reign with him forever. Have you failed this morning? Have you failed in your life and you recognize your failure? Listen, if you have failed, you're in good company. You're in good company. And this morning, what I want to talk about through the lens of this person we know very well, his name is Peter, I want to frame this around embracing the restoration made possible by Christ's death and resurrection. He made it possible for us to move from failure to fruitful, from loser to minister, shameful to free. That's what we want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the familiar story of Peter's uh, life at the end of his time with Christ, right before Christ's death, to what happened after that and the results of his failure and how Christ restored him at the end of his earthly time in ministry, how Christ restored him. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 22. And, uh, and what we're going to try to do is, is take a look at two different uh, the same story from two different places. Uh, the first four Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, right? They see the same events from different points of view. And so we're going to take a look at Luke's version in Luke 22, 31 to 34. And if you keep your thumb there, you could also cross-reference Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. But in this Luke narrative, let's start here in Luke 22, verses 31. To 34. This is, this is where we pick up Peter's life and narrative. It says this in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him in Peter's way, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. Go quickly back to Matthew 26. I want to just frame this because it's fascinating. Look at Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. Same event. And again, this is, this is after the upper room experience on the night before Jesus died. And in verse 30 of Matthew 26, and when they had sung a hymn, he went, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, now he's talking to all the disciples, you all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
So he gives this prophecy to all of them. He says, all of you, all, all of my disciples who've been faithfully with me, you're all going to be scattered tonight. And yet Peter steps up and he answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples wanting to jump on that bandwagon said, we'll follow suit. Well, just remember, to give you some context of where we're at in the narrative of Jesus' life, this is, this is the upper room. We're going to the Thursday night of the Passion Week, the week where Jesus is going to die on a Friday, be raised again on a Sunday. And in this upper room, we find Jesus, and he is, he is trying to reinforce to his disciples what his kingdom is all about. And you remember that uh, he kept telling his disciples, look, leadership in my kingdom is about becoming the greatest servant. It's not lording it over people. It's not being the best and the brightest. It's becoming the greatest and most humble of servants. You remember Jesus demonstrated that very vividly when he actually took on the apron of a slave and washed the disciples' feet. It was like he wanted to re-illustrate and re-pound re, uh, that into the disciples' mind. This is what my kingdom's about. And yet the disciples were all about wondering who's going to get the greatest tribes, who's going to get the greatest swath of land in the kingdom. They had kingdom fever. And it was at a fever pitch. They were going, man, this is incredible. You remember on, on a, a Palm Sunday that Jesus entered into Jerusalem to the the praise and the, and the shouts of joy from all the people. They're saying, this is it. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom, and we're on the ground floor, baby. We're going to get, we're going to get huge rulerships in this. That's what they were thinking. And so Peter here, in his, in his exuberance, in his passion, and I would even say in his pride... He was, he was ready to be bold and say, look, I'm your guy, Jesus. I, I, look, all these other chumps, listen, they may fail you, but I'm your guy. You can count on me. This is the unseen, the unforeseen or the unseen factors in failure. Look at, well, we'll look at how did Peter fall here? You know the story of how he did fall, but how did he fall? What were the unforeseen factors here? And there's really two factors that we see here. One is pride, and one is satanic attack. Deceptive pride causes us to have an overestimation of our own self-reliance. An overestimation of self or self-reliance. Notice what Peter had said in Matthew 26, 33. We read it already. Though they all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter showed an ignorance. See, pride causes you to be ignorant of your own heart. It wasn't that Peter uh, lacked zeal. He lacked passion. It, he even meant it. Right? It was later on that Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit is willing. You, you want to do this. And even Peter demonstrated this. You remember when, when finally a few hours later when Jesus was accosted by the soldiers. You remember that? that? That Judas had finally caught up. Judas probably brought the soldiers to the upper room. They weren't there. He's like, uh-oh, I know where he's going. He brings them to Gethsemane. They show up in Gethsemane, and Peter pulls his sword out, remember? And he, and he hacks off Malchus's ear, this poor servant of the priest, right? He hacks off his ear, and I'm thinking, man, th that seems like he's pretty bold, but remember that Peter, uh, okay, anybody played Nintendo growing up? 
Anybody? Right, okay, there, I'll just see where the crowd's at here. Uh, there was a cheat code, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, 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 start. And you get unlimited lives, right? Like, and so Peter was had this emboldened part where he's like, I'm going to start hacking at soldiers. Why? Because he knew that Jesus had just raised Lazarus a few weeks earlier, and if he could raise Lazarus from the dead, it's like you get, you get the one-ups. Uh, you have ever, you know, you can keep dying and he'll raise you up. It's, that gives you pretty bold perspective, right? So, so he starts hacking. And he was bold as long as he was next to Jesus. But we'll see once he was apart from Jesus, his passion faded, his strength left. He had a he lacked a humble regard for his own weakness. It is the mark of youthful zeal but immaturity to have an overestimation of yourself. Those of you who are parents and grandparents in here, right, when you watch your kids uh, grow up, that young men, when they get their driver's license at 16, think, what do young men at 16 and drive, what do they think? They think nothing will ever happen to them, right? Nothing. They could drive fast. They could, they could eat Taco Bell while they're texting, while they're, whatever, putting on their shirt, and nothing bad will ever happen. It's an overestimation of weakness. It's pride 101, and until it's dealt with by faith, it will hinder true ministry and youthfulness. And not only was there an overestimation of self-reliance, he thought he was ready before he was. In Luke's narrative, it says, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. I think this is why, this is why Jesus was willing to allow Satan to sift him like wheat. Peter thought he was ready, but what he was banking on, what he was counting on, was his own strength. Was Peter naturally gifted? Absolutely. He was a natural leader. He was a natural spokesman. He had, he had just a natural way with people. He was naturally bold, and, and so sometimes what happens is we rely on those natural abilities that we have and think that that will carry us through anything. You know one thing that God has been impressing on my heart and my soul. Do you know how you can identify pride in your life? Pride is a, is a slippery thing, right? Like, uh, pride is one of those things that if you deny it, you probably have it, right? If somebody goes, hey, you're being prideful. No, I'm not. Ah, got you, right? Because we can't see it all the time. It's something in our heart. We have to be aware of it. And, and do you know, how do you, how do you take a thermometer and, and diagnose if you're being prideful or not? Because I will tell you, I'm very good at hiding my pride in, in the form of false humility, right? I'm, I'm really good at showing false humility. There's two great ways to know if you're acting in pride. Ready? Prayerlessness. That's like a telltale sign. If you want to know if you're acting in pride, meaning you're trusting yourself and self-reliance, just take a, a quick, not even corporate prayer. I'm not talking about prayers before meals. That's all good. Amen and amen. Do it. But I'm talking about your own prayer before the Lord. And unfortunately, I will tell you that, that that's, that's how I can diagnose my heart, and sometimes I am found wanting because I feel like I can do it on my own. I don't need God. The other thing, the other way to tell is how many of the activities of your day do you do without a thought of your need and your weakness and your dependency on him? How many, how many things through your day, how many ministries have you done, how many activities that you've in, embarked on that you say, I don't really need the Lord here, I got this. Those are dangerous places to be. We open ourselves up to pride and we open ourselves up to attack. Well, notice not only, oh, and here, remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We, we delight in our weakness. We don't overestimate our own strength. Well, Peter fell not just because of his deceptive pride, but because of satanic influence. Now, I, thought, I always think this is one of my, the most fascinating passages of Scripture because Jesus says, 
by the way, Peter, Satan's asked for you to sift you like wheat. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I'm a son of a farmer, and I know what sifting of wheat, I think, what that meant, right? Satan's going to take your life. He's gonna, you would put wheat in this big kind of threshing thing, and you would shake it up, and you would toss it in the air, and as you toss it in the air, the chaff would blow away, and the seed would come down. It was a, it was a violent operation. You had to shake that stuff up so the, the seed would get... Uh, separated from the chaff, and the chaff would blow away. Satan wants to shake your life up, Peter. And listen, there's part of me in that narrative going, yeah, and what'd you tell him? Like, okay, yeah, Satan asked me, Jesus, and did you, like, say, go pound sand, Satan, right? Like, like that would be what my next statement would be. And he didn't do it. He goes, yep, and I'm going to let him do it. What? I'm going to let him do it. Not only am I going to let him do it, but listen, you're going to fail. But I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not even causing you to fail. It's not me causing you to fail, but you're going to fail. But, but I'm going to be here. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm praying that your faith would be sustained. Satan's trying to get you to, to fail forever. I'm going to test you, and I'm going to, you're going to be purified as a result of this. What are Satan's methods and goals and limitations? What does Satan want us to do? Satan want us, wants us to fail. It's as old as the garden. He did it to Adam and Eve. He tried to, tried to corrupt the whole plan of salvation or the whole plan of mankind. And there are certain things that Satan can do and certain things that Satan can't do. But listen, I, I, I recently heard a sermon that said, who is the greatest preacher in our modern day? Who is the greatest preacher besides Eric? Who is the greatest preacher in our modern day? And it's Satan. He is relentless. He knows our culture better than anybody. He knows the truth. He never sleeps. He keeps going, and he, he keeps communicating to our culture. He is, he is seeking to deceive, to blind, to, to move away. Satan was already, you can see in the narrative, that he was already pressing in on Peter. You remember that? Remember when, when uh, Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, and Peter said, you will never go to the cross. I will stand the gap. You'll never go to the cross. You remember what Jesus said to Peter at that point? Get behind me, Satan. We remember certain things about satanic attack. Satanic attack, listen, in the West is hard for us to comprehend. We don't really buy into it. In the, in, in the East or other, other countries that I've been to, they're much more aware of this. But, but remember this about satanic attack. First thing is this. It's always based on a lie. Satan is, John 8, he is the father of lies. It's always a lie. It's never the truth. It's veiled in the truth, but Satan's attacks are always based on a lie. He wants you to think a certain way, especially, listen, when it comes to failure. He would love us to think that that is now our new identity. You are a failure. You should be guilty and shameful. Look down. How could you ever do anything for the Lord? He is a liar. Second is he cannot take away our salvation, right? He cannot take away our salvation, but can he make us think he can? Eric's been preaching about it, the, and, and this summer we've been talking about the assurance of salvation here. Is that correct? Good. Okay, that's what we've been talking about. And listen, are we assured of our salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Amen and amen, right? That is the foundation, and that's what we cling to. It's not our ability to cling to Christ. It's his ability to cling to us. But can Satan make us think that we can somehow get out of Christ's big hands? Satan's power is limited to what God would allow. Satan's power is limited. We see it in the life of Job in the Old Testament. We see it in the life of Peter. Does Satan have much power? Yes, but it's limited to what God would allow him to do. But he is active, and the last one is he is more powerful than we give him credit for. He can inflict pain. He is, he is the ultimate tempter. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, I don't know if Eric's preached on Ephesians yet, but if you walk through the book of Ephesians, you see this key word all through Ephesians. What is it? It's the word walk, right? Walk in love, walk in the truth, walk in the light, walk, in, walk, 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 walk. And you get to chapter 6, and you know what chapter 6 stands? Uh, I just gave it away. Do you know what chapter 6 says when it comes to the schemes of the devil? He says, stand. 
You walk, 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 and when the schemes of the devil come, you stand. You stand firm. You don't move forward, you don't move back, but you're going to stand through the barrage of what Satan will come and bring to you. And here we have this assurance of what Jesus is doing. He tells Peter that he is protecting him, he is praying for him, and Jesus has the ultimate power. Satan cannot do the things that he says he can do, but he can make us think he can. He can tempt us, but Jesus says, I am praying for you. He said it in John 17, 9, in Hebrews 7, 25. He says he lives to make intercession for us. He is praying for us. And listen, Jesus doesn't pray that we will fail, but when we fail, he is praying that he will preserve our faith and restore us when we do. And so Jesus prays. He refines us. He uses, he uses our failure to grow us, and he is there he is there to pick us up when we do. Now, turn with me to Luke 22 and look, look at verse 54. The unexpected results of failure. What are the results of failure? I don't know if I have to dig into this too much, but we'll take a look at it anyway. Look at, look at verse 54 of Luke 22. You remember the story. So the soldiers come, they take Jesus away, and it says in the text that the, the disciples scattered, just like Jesus had promised. And in verse 54, it says this, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now his strength has gone away. His, his courage has dissolved. Jesus isn't right next to him anymore, and the whole plan has fallen apart. What's going on? And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, a little girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, hey, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't even know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, and actually in Matthew's narrative, it says another girl you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Matthew's narrative says, I can understand your dialect. You're, you're a Galilean. I can tell that accent anywhere. I don't know what a Galilean accent sounded like. Maybe a new, yo, yo, I, I don't know. It's like... <laughs> It's like, somehow, yeah, man, you're totally a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're even talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, if you put these two narratives together, you get a pretty stark picture of what went on around this little fire as Peter was huddled in the cold, and Jesus was shuffled between six different trials, three Roman, three Jewish trials, to get him on the cross before the sun came up. And it's fascinating as you put these two together what, what Peter was faced with. And it was, it's, I just think it's amazing how God's providence set this, sets this up. It wasn't Roman soldiers. It wasn't big, uh, big bulky men that were doing this. It was little girls who were saying, hey, hey, you're with him. Now, remember, we're within hours of Peter banging on his chest saying, I will never, I'll never deny you. I'll go to prison. I'll die for you, Jesus. And within, within hours, his strength has failed. You ever face that? You're going, man, I don't ever want to sin against you, Lord, one more. I, don't, I never want to do that sin again. I never want to look at that again. I never want to do that again. And within hours, you're right back at it. That was Peter. And it says in Matthew's narrative that, I mean, he was cussing and swearing and swearing oaths on his mom's grave and on, you know, LeBron J. He's like, he's like I swear, man, and I don't know this guy. Like, he was, he was not, only, not only denying it, I mean, he was distancing himself as much as he could, swearing oaths, which is a big deal in this culture, against himself. And I think, I just, if there was one moment of time that I could observe a picture of, of God's 
grace and yet God's grace through our failure, it would be this, is when Peter denied him the third time and the rooster crowed, and somehow in how Jesus was being shuffled around, that Peter saw him and caught his eye. And Jesus, I believe, when he saw him, I believe Jesus' eyes were saline-filled with tears. Not in a condemning judging, inflammatory way, saying, I can't believe you, Peter, you dog. He looked at Peter and he goes, as a, as a parent would, as, a, as somebody who loves a loved one would, says, I know, I know. This was necessary, but I see your failure. Listen, failures, especially moral failures, against those that we love the most are the hardest to deal with. We want to please those that we love. I couldn't imagine, listen, um, there are certain failures in this world that are heinous, right? There are certain failures in this world that, that cause people to, to uh, fail out of ministry, maybe out of your marriage, you'll lose your jobs. I couldn't imagine a bigger failure than what Peter did to Christ, right? Could you imagine? Like you just cussed that you don't know him. And it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And we're going to see that it took Peter a while to overcome this, right? Like, like you all of a sudden, like Peter was this big pounding his chest, and you see him a couple other times in the narrative before we get to Galilee, and he's quiet. He's not sure what to do. He's wrecked. And let's, let's just dig into this just a little bit, just for a few minutes, about the consequences that we feel personally in failure, particularly moral failure against the Lord and against others. What do we gain and what do we lose? I, I think it's important that we embrace what we feel in failure to, to then breathe the fresh air of restoration and forgiveness, right? We're going to get there. We're not going to end in failure. That'd be brutal. What do we gain and lose in failure? What do we gain? We gained a heightened sense of inadequacy. And I mean inadequacy in the, in the worst sense. We should feel inadequate in some ways, but Christ makes us adequate. It's what uh, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, that, we, that Christ makes us adequate, but, but we have this heightened sense of inadequacy. It means we start taking on the identity of a failure. We walk around, like in the book, The Scarlet Letter. You remember that book? Hester Prynne had to wear a scarlet letter, and, and, and whether or not we think people can see it, we feel like they can, is that we have this heightened sense of inadequacy. We also feel and have a buried form of shame and guilt. Shame and guilt. Guilt and shame go back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve hid from God and covered themselves and their spouse. You remember that? When Adam and Eve sinned, they had to cover themselves. They no longer could look God in the eye. They no longer could look each other in the eye. Shame causes us to look down, and guilt causes us to look back. Shame means I feel like I can't look at anybody, and guilt means I'm always looking at myself in the rearview mirror in my past. And I have an enemy that's always going to remind me of my past, especially those failures. And what happens in this is when, when we deal with guilt and shame, we feel like we can cover up guilt and shame either by, by getting out of, uh, isolating ourselves and, and and mourning that way, but we could also cover it up with activity, with pursuing success and power and money and pleasure or achievement as we try to counter how we feel, but shame and guilt keep us buried in sand, and though we smile and present ourselves a certain way in public, we constantly see ourselves in the mirror of past wrongs. Guilt and shame keep us in quicksand. We keep us stuck there. And it's fascinating, the narrative, how it, how it sets up, is that, is that you had Peter who kind of ran away in guilt and shame. You remember what Judas Iscariot did? 
when he felt guilt and shame. It says he went back to those who he had got the 30 pieces of silver. The text says he changed his mind. Uh Uh-oh, I did it. Now he's feeling badly. He throws the silver back down there, and he runs away, and he weeps bitterly, but what does he do? He had no option. He had nowhere else to turn. What did he do? And he hung himself because he couldn't deal with guilt and shame. I was talking with a friend. There was, we've dealt with some pretty heavy counseling issues at our church. Um, our church is, we have like sinful people. You guys don't have that yet. Uh, anyway, we, we, have, we have sinful people that we deal with our sin. And, and, uh, and I was talking to a friend and, and something had come into my, as a pastor, you hear about these things. And, and when you hear about somebody in your congregation, what you do is I say, it's a rumor until I confirm it. So I called my buddy. I said, hey, hey, my friend, I just need to ask you, this came to my attention, I just need to ask you if it's true. If it's not true, then I trust you. If it is true, we need to deal with it. He goes, I am so glad you asked. I've been carrying this for months, and now somebody knows, and we can deal with it. I'm like, finally. (laughs) Like, let's deal with it. The beautiful, and, and I know Eric says it, I know you, I've heard it here before, like the church is a place you can be fully known and fully loved, but we don't like, we like the idea of being fully loved, we don't want to be fully known. We desperately don't want to be fully known. That is a deception of our enemy, of Satan, that says, look, yes, I, ah, yes, we're all sinners, we're all sinners, but I can't share my sin, because if I share my sin, it's all going to come out, and then they're going to think differently about me. Then I'm out. What? That's what we gain. What do we lose? What do we lose in guilt and shame? We lose joy. We lose joy. This was David in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones burned within me. Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. When he kept silent about his sin, he ached inside of himself. When he confessed his sin, finally, he restored joy. Joy was back to him. We lose intimacy. Intimacy with God, intimacy with others, unresolved, unrestored sin kills intimacy in marriage moving those who are one in the Lord to strangers living together. When we stay mired in the failures of our past, we cannot move forward with intimacy with the Lord because we do not want to be fully known. Intimacy is experienced when one knows all about you, sins and all, and still loves. This is what God is willing to do because he was willing to cleanse us from sin. And we lose trust we lose trust. Trust is a choice in human relationships, and though we're called to trust the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding and acknowledge Him in all things, though we're called to do that, trust is a choice that we do at this level. I was telling you about some of these counseling things that we've been going, uh, that we've been dealing with, and, and one of the sweetest phrases I've heard from somebody in our church who fully understood the gospel they looked at, <laughs> we sat at a table. I sat at a table with two different couples, and there had been some egregious sin that had gone on between couples. You can only imagine. And one woman looked at the other woman and said this. I love this. She said, I love you. I forgive you. I don't trust you, but I want to. That's, that's the power of the gospel and restoration. Now, how do we get there? Turn with me. I put it wrong in your bulletin, but go to John 21. How do we, how do we end this story? How do we end this story? John 21, particularly in verses 15 to 19. Jesus didn't just leave Peter. I love that. He didn't leave Peter. Now, he let Peter, uh, gave him some space, gave him some room. Peter was there at the empty tomb. In John's narrative, there was two other times that Jesus appeared to his disciples, and they, they weren't sure what to make of it. He passed through walls and stuff, but, but they didn't know what to do. And, and you just don't see Peter talking a whole lot. But finally, in John 21, what we see is Peter is back fishing. Now, some have said, is he, is he done being a disciple and, and, and a, uh, an evangelist that way? Is he just going back to his life as a fisherman? Maybe. 
But definitely for sure, he was, he was quiet. He went back to something comfortable. He went back to something known. He was out of the public light. And so he, he was back on this boat. And I think it's fascinating as you see this unfold. If you read John 21 later, the whole chapter, you'll see that they're back fishing like they had in the beginning when Jesus first called them. And Jesus is on the shore. And what does Jesus do? He creates a fire on the shore. <laughs> I just think that's pretty poetic, right? Like that's where, Sa- that's where Peter denied him three times, was around this fire when little girls were, were questioning him. And Jesus creates the same situation, the same scenario. He puts fire and a, and a breakfast on the beach. They see Jesus. They don't know who it is, but they really know who it is. He says, cast down your nets. The fish are overwhelming. It's breaking their nets. They know it's Jesus. And Peter is still Peter, right? So Peter jumps out of the boat, as he does, and he starts swimming to shore. He gets to shore, and Jesus starts cooking the fish. He cooks them bread. He makes them breakfast, and he starts in on Peter. Read with me John 21, verse 14. This was now the third time, third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus approached Peter three times. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to go, but when you're old, you'll be stretched out. You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, and after saying this, he had said to him, follow me. Real quickly, we're not going to dig into this too deeply, but understand this, that Jesus came back to restore Peter after he failed. It's what God does in the gospel is he restores us in our failure. Jesus is not in the business of keeping us in our guilt and shame. He does not seek a pound of flesh. He wasn't saying, Peter, you don't feel bad enough yet. I want to let you wallow in your sin a little bit more. We do that. We want our pound of flesh, especially, listen, we're okay with other people's sin as long as it doesn't affect us. When it affects us, we want, we want a pound of flesh. In fact, Jesus took care of all of that for us. All of the pounds of flesh needed were pounded out on the cross. So what is, what is it here? Just let me draw four principles out of here, and then we'll be done. The meaning of restoration. Jesus, the word restoration isn't here, but the idea is, the principle is, the idea is to make new, to be renewed, and become better or stronger than it was before. The word restoration is, is a word that was used by uh, fishermen to mend nets, uh, and, and what was true about restoration, and even true today, uh, when you break a bone where that bone is broken and mended together in the calcium deposit there, it becomes stronger than it was before. We're restored in salvation according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when we become new creations in Christ. We're restored to joy after we sin, Psalm 51, 12. We're to restore those who have sinned in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6, 1. Our restoration with God allows and demands our restoration with each other. Forgiveness... Listen, here's how the gospel functions, right? Forgiveness is the gateway. It's the, it's the entry gate of restoration. Forgiveness is the entryway, the gateway of restoration. In Ephesians 4.32, we forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. Hebrews 10.17 says God will remember our sins no more. 
He doesn't forget. He chooses to remember our sins no more. So when we seek forgiveness for what we've done, Christ says, I've taken that sin and I've paid for it. God's wrath was poured out for it on the cross, right? Like that's the gateway of of restoration. So that means now we can move toward being restored. It's taken, it's taken away. It's been, it's been paid for. Now we can be restored in a right relationship both this way and this way. And notice, notice how Jesus did it with Peter. He told the command for Peter, the question of Peter is, do you love me? It wasn't do something for me. It was, do you love me? That's, that's the ball game. If he would have told Peter, now, Peter, here's what I want you to go do. I want you to go dip in the river. I want you to sell all your possessions. I want you to, whatever, sell your nets. Peter would go, yes, I'll do it. He didn't say those things. He said simply, do you love me? He didn't try to restore Peter by telling him, you better never do that again, boy. That's the last time. That's my last straw. You're on thin ice, brother. One more time, you're out. He didn't say that. He simply said, do you love me? Now, much has been made about what the words here mean, agapao or phileo, and and all those things, and I'm sure there's things to unpack here, but here's what I want you to see in this first statement. He said this, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Here's what I believe Jesus is doing. That could mean, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than the, the, the job of being a fisherman? That's a possibility in the text. But I believe here is the arc of the story, the bookends of the story. Where did, what was Peter doing just a few weeks before? What was he saying about his, his following of Jesus? He was pounding his chest saying, I, I, I will never deny you. Me, I, me, I will never do that. The focus was on himself. And Peter, and Jesus gives him another opportunity. Peter, do you love me now more than the other disciples? Do you love me more than the other disciples? And Peter wasn't banging his chest. He wasn't saying, yep, <laughs> the chump dogs still don't get it. Saying, yes, Lord, you, you, know, you know, you know. I don't need to prove it to anybody. I don't need to, to be boastful in front of everybody, anybody, I'm humbled, you know. When we're secure in the love that Christ has for us, we love because what? He first loved us. Love had everything to do with it. By restoring Peter to the foundational realities of love, all other obedience and sacrifice would flow out of that spring. Notice here, too, that there was no required time or makeup. It was instant. He was restored. It wasn't that Jesus said to him, all right, now, Peter, give, give me six more months, and we'll see if you've, if you've learned the lesson. Take six more months, and we'll see. There was no time. That's how I think sometimes when, pe- when people fail. Peter, you're back in, but only on a trial basis. And if you screw up again, you're out. But that's not the way of Jesus. When Jesus died, he took all of our sin, listen, all of our guilt and all of our shame. He took it on himself and it was nailed to the cross along with our debt. The pound of flesh was pounded out through the nails of the cross and when Jesus rose again, we had to bear it no more. Restoration comes through Jesus alone, not through our makeup efforts. Remember that. It's not through our efforts that we can be restored, it's through His work. And no one gets away with anything, and all sin is paid for. And here's, here's just the sweetest part of it, is He, is he entrusts Peter with, with tending and feeding His lambs and His sheep. He wasn't a second-class citizen, right? Peter wasn't relegated to the minor league team. He wasn't part of the Rancho Cucamonga Dodger affiliate, okay? Like, he was, he was still on the big league club, and he was, he was not second-class. Jesus entrusted Peter with what was most precious to Jesus, which was his, his sheep, his lambs. That's how Jesus restores us in failure. 
Now notice the story doesn't end there, and Peter lives now a life of sacrifice, a life of service, and, and even Jesus gives him a promise. That's one of those promises that I'm not sure I'd want. He said, Peter, by the way, not only are you restored, you're going to do ministry now, you're going to take care of my lamb, I'm going to, uh, through you, you're going to lead and serve, and the church is going to move and through you and your efforts, but not only that, but you get to have the honor of being crucified like me. Arms stretch out, moved where somebody else doesn't want you to go, or where you don't want to go. And then he gave him this simple charge, follow me. Here's the beauty of the story of Peter. I love 1 Peter 5.5. 5. I think Peter got it. He got humility and, and dependence on Christ because in 1 Peter 5.5 5, he says, we're to take on the form or the take on the apron of a slave. He got it. It's like, it's like at the end when he goes, yes, I just want to love Christ. He goes, I get it now. I get the upper room. When Jesus washed my feet, that's how I sh should treat other people. I'm going to take on the apron of a slave. I'm going to wash people's feet. Feet. It's already plural. Feet, proverbially. I'm going I'm to serve. It's not about me anymore. And he followed him. What are you holding on to from your past? Are you holding on to any past failures? What's weighing you down from joy that you could be embracing right now? Yes, you're going through the motions. Yes, you read your Bible. Yes, you show up for corporate worship, but there's no joy because you're still holding on to secret sin. Do you have skeletons in your closet that you don't want anyone to, to know or be known so you keep them hidden at the cost of joy? Who are you holding back restoration from? Who is there somebody in your life that you haven't offered forgiveness to and walked through a path of restoration because you're going, yes, I can forgive much, but not that? Have you committed forgiveness to someone but refused to be restored? Failure exposes our weaknesses, and our weaknesses drive us to the grace of Jesus. Failure exposes our weaknesses. And weaknesses drive us to the grace of Jesus. Any and all failures can be forgiven and restored. There is nothing that any of you have done that have outdone Christ's reach of forgiveness. Even, even cursing an oath that you even know Jesus, Peter wasn't outside of the reach of forgiveness. Failure doesn't invalidate your life or define you. Christ's love does. We're reminded this morning that we're all losers. All of us have failed. All of us have sinned and gone our own way. All have been broken by sin, but we're equally reminded that God redeems our failures and makes us usable ministers of the gospel. That's the best news we could hear today. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning, and I thank you for the time we have together. Thank you for the faithfulness of the leadership of this church. Thank you for what you're teaching and showing us constantly through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we would embrace the forgiveness that you offer us, that we could be restored from sin that we've been harboring or sin we've been struggling with or sin we've been holding against another. And in that, I pray that you would restore our joy, the joy that we have in Christ alone. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.